This is the Blaze Radio On Demand. Don't miss the morning blaze with Doc and Skip. I will not be satisfied in this case until Lois Lerner and others go to prison. Lois Lerner was allowed to stay on the payroll for a couple of extra months so she would get an even bigger retirement. And now she's sitting her fat ass at her home in Richmond sucking off of her retirement that she got from public tax dollars. The Morning Blaze with Doc and Skip. Weekday mornings, 6 to 9 Eastern on the Blaze Radio Network. Go for Mike Slater in three, two, one. You're listening to Mike Slater, part of the next generation of talk radio, only on the Blaze Radio Network. America, Slater's America is the greatest country in the world. Happy Saturday. Thanks for being here. Um, want to talk, want to kick right off talking about the three Americans on that train in France. There's, I'm sorry, I'm having trouble where to start. Um, you may have heard, this was last week, and you may have heard original reports that it was three Marines, which is cool, right? That's a cool story. It's nice to know that our Marines, our Marines, whether they're wearing their uniform or if they're off duty on vacation in Europe, they're still Marines through and through. It's like the final scene from A Few Good Men where Tom Cruise says to the, the Marine... You don't need to wear a patch on your arm to have honor. These Marines have honor, whether they're wearing their uniforms or not. So those are original reports. Turns out, they're not Marines. One's an airman, one's in the National Guard, and the third is a friend from middle school. Personally, I think that makes the story even better. That these three men were willing to put themselves in harm's way to save the lives of every single person, pretty much every single person on that train. It turns out that the uh, terrorist had 300 rounds of ammunition on him. He was ready to kill 300 people. Now, I want to come back around to these three Americans. But the truth is, this type of service, this type of putting yourself in harm's way, happens all the time. In fact, last weekend, just this last week, seven days ago, Louisiana, a man drives his truck into a ditch. An officer pulls him over. And the male in the truck, not a man, he's a male, pulls, off, pulls out a uh, shot-off sh- shotgun. Shoots the officer in the head. Right after that, at least two people who were driving by, stopped. One helped the officer, the other ran after the murderer and wrestled his shotgun away from him. And then they used the officer's handcuffs to restrain him until other officers arrived. Putting yourselves in harm way. Washington, D.C., last week, a guy wearing a mask walks into a bar, shows his knife to the bartender, tells him to give him all his money. The bartender punched him in the face. Because it turns out the bartender has studied mixed martial arts since he was a teenager. I want to go back to Louisiana. Gunman entered a bar. Started shooting in the air. Started a hostage situation with police outside. Right before the SWAT team arrived. 
a woman ran outside of the bar yelling, they got him, they got him. During the standoff, someone ran behind the gunman, and then a handful of other people rushed him and took all the guns away from him. I think he had three guns on him. All of those stories were last weekend. (laughs) I'm reading these stories, and I'm thinking, who do these people think they are? American service members on a French train? It's strange. It's, it's, it's as if Americans are no longer willing to wait for the government to come to their rescue. It's almost like we're becoming Americans again. I want to go back to the train. There was a uh, first-hand account from an, a French actor who was on that train. And I just want to read the last two paragraphs of his, his editorial he wrote. He said, the passengers did not yet realize. Let me start here. We were expecting death. And we had no choice. Then a young man rushed into our car shouting that the shooter was mastered by American soldiers on leave and everything was fine. He reassured us and brought first aid to the most seriously injured. We were out of danger. This morning I'm fine. I got five stitches, but the tendon was not hit. We are shocked, but we are alive. And that's the point. How about check out this line? We were in the wrong place, but with the right people. It's a miracle. We were incredibly lucky to have these American soldiers. I want to pay tribute to their heroic courage and thank them because without them, we'd all be dead. Love that. Question. In this situation, would you have reacted like these service members? Would you have reacted like these service members if you were on that train? Now, it's okay if not. Because here's the truth. There's a fourth person in this story. A British businessman. And maybe 50 years old. He was on that train. His instinct, when he heard the gunshots, was to hide. His instinct was to wait to die. But when he saw the three Americans run and jump on the terrorist, he joined in. So at first he was on the fence. So if I asked him that question two weeks ago, hey, would you run and jump on a terrace? He would say, no, I wouldn't. And he didn't until the Americans inspired him to get off that fence and help. And this is the best thing. Courage is contagious. Courage is contagious. Truly anyone is capable of being like these three Americans. And again, I love how they weren't three Marines. Yeah, an airman and a guardsman and their friend from middle school. So obviously still trained, but they weren't, you know, killing machines like our Marines are trained to be. They had training, but more than anything, they thought about this before it happened. They weren't stunned. They weren't caught off guard because they rehearsed this in their head a long time before. Because if you aren't prepared, you'll freeze. If you are prepared, you'll run up the aisle and tackle a terrorist saving everybody's life on that train. 
I want to take a break. I want to come back. And I want to sh- actually, do I have a second? Yeah, let me do one more. Let me, let me say one more thing about it. This is my, so my favorite part of the story is, is the British uh, businessman who jumped in. Wasn't going to. His first reaction was to hide. But he decided to jump in because courage is contagious. That's my favorite aspect. Second favorite aspect of what happened last week. The American who was on the aisle seat, who was obviously the first to run down or run down the aisle and, get, and tackle the guy, he ran into danger with a hundred percent certainty that his two friends would be right behind him. <laughs> That's amazing. He jumped into the line of fire. Not hoping his friends would follow him. Not even just, well, you know, we'll see. 100% certainty that his friends would follow him. And it's that teamwork, that trust, that sacrificing your life. Not only for everyone else on that train, but for the friend next to you. That is everything. I love that, that part of the story so much. You know when he jumped into that aisle and started running, you know that he knew his two friends were right behind him. Let me share a quick story. I'm reading this book right now. It's called uh, Gates of Fire. And it's about the Battle of Thermopylae. Remember the interview we did last week with Glenn Beck? I mentioned it. So uh, the Battle of Thermopylae. So the movie 300 is about that battle. So you can envision that. I just started this book and... Um, they're talking about how they trained Spartan boys to become warriors. And they're on an eight-day training session. It's sort of like, like Navy SEAL training. This would be like Hell Week. Right? So eight days, and they're on the seventh day. They're absolutely exhausted. And the commander walks around the camp at night. And one of the boys, he's 12 or so, one of the boys had his shield laying in the dirt more than an arm's reach away. Now, Spartan rule, the rules of Sparta says you got to keep your shield standing up and within arm's reach at all times. It is never on the ground and it is never more than an arm's reach away from you. But this boy's was. So the commander comes up to him and reams into him, just full metal jacket style. And then this is what the commander does. He tells every one of the boys in the platoon, about 30 boys, he tells them all to put their shield down in the dirt, lay it in the dirt, just like this boy did, and lay on the ground a couple feet away from it. Just like the boy's shield was. So all the boys do it. And then the commander says, shield's up! And because the shield is so far away, it takes a couple seconds for the boys to A, run over there, and B, pick it up because it's so heavy. And in the meantime, this commander took a heavy stick and smashed each kid across the face. He hit one kid across the face, second kid, third kid, fourth kid, fifth kid, and then he came to the sixth kid, ding, hit the shield because it took that long to get the shield up. He then had the kids lay the shield back in the dirt and go lay back down more than an arm's reach away. And he said, shields up, did it again, went down the line, smashing each kid in the face over and over again until he hit each kid a couple times. And after an entire night's worth of torture, 
He had the boys get back in their positions, but this time have their shields standing up in ready position and within an arm's reach away. And he said, shields up. And their shields were in position. And the commander couldn't get one hit on one of the boys because they were ready. They were right there. The shields were in place. The line was protected. And the lesson was learned by each of those boys. You never let your shield be more than an arm's length away. Not only for your protection, but for the protection of the man next to you. And the boy who screwed up in the first place, he then recited this mantra. He said, this is my shield. I beat it before me into battle, but it is not mine alone. It protects the brother on my left. I will never let my brother out of its shadow. I will never let my brother out of its shadow. These three Americans last week on that train, they didn't have any shields. But they never let each other out of their shadow. They were sheepdogs on that train. On a train full of sheep in France, three Americans were sheepdogs. And there was no question that they were going to take this terrorist down together. Their strength multiplied by the men behind them also ready to fight. Because as we just said, courage is contagious. one 3393 Mike Slater Show, The Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. You're listening to Mike Slater on the Blaze Radio Network. Mike Slater. Sliding Crusaders. The reason I share, there's a couple of reasons, but uh, one reason why I share these stories of not just the three Americans on the train in France, but but the other American stories, right? People who wrestled away a, a sawed-off shotgun, who took down a, a guy, taking a, people in a bar hostage, right? Like, these stories of men, just <laughs> real men, taking it upon themselves to save the day. Uh, but it's not, it's not like, well, here I am. I'm going to save the day. It's I'm going to do what I'm supposed to do. I'm a man. It is my job to protect. And these stories of these men stepping up, and this, these were just last week. I didn't have to go way back into the vault to find these stories. They were last week. And we love these stories. Now, I'm, I'm, I'd like to present something. I'd, I'd like to propose that there's a connection between a rise in stories like what we just shared, exemplified by the three Americans in France, but there's a connection between the rise in stories like we shared and a rise in the support of Donald Trump. Now, I want to parse it out a little more in the next segment, but I see a rise in action and manliness. Now, again, you got to hear me out. Anyway, I don't have time to do it now, but I'll do full in the next segment. Here's a quick background, though. I think I believe everything, mostly everything, is a pendulum or a circle. Um, so my wife, the other day, came downstairs, and I said, oh, wife, I love your jeans. She's like, oh, she goes, thanks. They're back in style now. 
What do you mean they're back in style? They were uh, bell bottoms. <laughs> no, not like crazy bell bottoms, but they were bigger than a boot cut, right? They're bell bottom jeans. They're back in style now. High waisted jeans are were last couple months back in style for women straight from the eighties. For men, the the skinny suit is in fashion right now. But in a few years, baggy suits will be back again. And then it'll go back to skinny suits a decade or so after that. I have uh, all my dad's old uh, wide ties. His ties are very wide. Uh, But he does have one tie from way back when he was in college that was skinny. So they were skinny ties when he was in college. And then they were wide ties when he was a businessman. And now we're back to skinny ties. Right, <laughs> but I'm gonna hang on to all my dad's wide ties because those are gonna be coming back in style again sometime soon too. So if fashion swings back and forth, why doesn't manliness? I think we've had a decade or so of queer eye for the straight guy, metrosexual kind of girly man (laughs) culture. And I think we're seeing a a turning of the tide on that. Let me give you an example. Do you remember um, a couple years ago, Organizing for America? So Organizing for America was, they're the same people who were behind Barack Obama's election in 2008. And then after he was elected, they became Organizing for America, which is like the propaganda arm for the president. This was 2009. So this was during Obamacare. They tweeted out a flyer, and the flyer said, wear pajamas, drink hot chocolate, talk about getting health insurance. And the picture was of a 25-year-old guy wearing a zip-up onesie pajama, cupping a tiny mug of hot chocolate, looking as man-child as anyone could possibly look. And it is absurd. You look at this picture. Just Google Obama pajama boy. And it'll pop right up. And you look at this. You think, what is that? Do you think your grandpa would ever wear a zip-up onesie pajama? And you know, Tocqueville saw this coming in 1840. Democracy in America. He said the government would be like the authority of a parent. Where the parents' object was to prepare men for manhood, but the government's goal, on the contrary, is to keep the people in perpetual childhood. And I think we've had a decade of that. And women have the same version, too. Do you remember Julia? Julia was this made-up woman that the White House created, who from birth to death, cradle to grave, the White House highlighted how she could not survive if it wasn't for the government being a part of every aspect of her life. Literally from government daycare programs to Obamacare in the hospital. And everything in between, government was there for poor defenseless Julia. And if government wasn't, then Julia would, who knows, just lie in the fetal position crying all day for the rest of her life. And honestly, so it's men and women. And I think we're all sick of it. I think this country is sick of it. And I think we're fighting back. And it's not so much against PC politicians. That's how people interpret it. And that's what people say, oh, that we like Donald Trump because he, he doesn't say what's politically correct. I don't think that's it. It's deeper than that. I don't think we're just fighting against political correctness. I think we're fighting back against a pathetic culture. And these men in France in particular taking down the terrorist proved not only what we're capable of, 
but also showed deep down who all men want to be. And I also think that's why Trump's in the lead. I'll break it down in more detail. Coming up next, Mike Slater Show, The Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. This is Mike Slater. Part of the next generation of talk radio. On the Blaze Radio Network. Mike Slater is on. Slater Crusaders? It's Saturday. Thanks for being here. All right, I want to talk about Trump. And uh, I think this is all the Trump talking we'll do for the uh, for the day. We try to keep it on my, on my local show. We've got four hours a day, five days a week. Uh, it's 20 hours. We, we try to keep the Trump talk to a relative minimum. Otherwise, it could consume us all. Uh, so let's just spend a couple segments here and we'll wrap it up. So I like all arguments that get down to who we are on a on a primal level. Those arguments speak to me. Uh and and it could be anything. Uh like the paleo diet. Like if someone when someone articulately explains the paleo diet, I'm like, "Oh, okay, yeah, that makes sense to me." I like primal arguments. And primal just means uh, first. It's our foundation. It's who human beings are as animals. Just deep in our brains and our psyche. And I think a lot of people reject these arguments because uh, you think, oh, well, please. We're so advanced and smart. And we've progressed past these basic human desires. So these things no longer apply to me or to other humans anymore. <laughs> you think they're just lying to yourself. We still have primal urges. We still have primal reactions, even in situations where our advanced brains say, don't be scared of this. This is nothing to be scared of. Even when our brains say, don't be scared of this, our bodies still produce adrenaline just the same. Our bodies, our our heart rate still goes up just the same. Blood is still pumped to the parts that uh, is needed the most for fight and flight, your thighs, your chest, your lungs. Certain uh, uh, sugars are released into your muscles so that you can have a a quick burst of energy. All of these things happen without us even knowing. And even when our brains say, hey, now listen, this is nothing to be scared of. Your bodies still prepare because at the core, we are primal primal animals. And I think that really drives a lot of, of who we are. So that being said, Kent Baylor, 1987. He wrote the first book on the field of human paleopsychology. Paleopsychology. Actually, one, one more quick background. Um, do you remember? I think it was. I think it was last week. Did we? Did we talk about the uh, second platoon battle company on that remote outpost in Afghanistan? I think we did last week, and um, we did a good study on on these men in their environment. And the reason it's important to look at these men in that, this environment, in this remote outpost, is because they're just like us, except they're stripped of all the comforts, all the luxuries, all the pleasantries, all the social norms 
that we live with every day because they're in this remote outpost of Afghanistan being shot at every single day. So at that in that environment, it's base human survival. So you must rely on the things that matter. There's no time for anything else. So I like an analysis that gets down to the most basic aspects of who we are. And that's what human paleopsychology is. It says that humans have been around for a long time. And it affects everything that we think and feel and do politically and morally. So I, I, I subscribe to this. I believe in this. So I want to jump right to the, the, the scientist's conclusions. Um, I'll quote, Donald Trump is the prototypical archetype and testosterone driven alpha male who rules by the sheer forces of, of his personality imposing physique he is i think he's six two quick wit mastery of repartee and almost hypnotic control over his gathering masses of adoring followers he is a hill uh, attila to the huns henry v to the outnumbered english army winston churchill to the desperate allied forces and now he is our fearless leader against the pagan forces of progressivism and political correctness he is the unapologetic quintessential warrior male of yore capable of vanquishing any and all opposition in his way. I love that he is he is a he's the quintessential alpha warrior male. Now let me say real quick, I don't think people's support of Donald Trump is irrational. I've heard people say, "Oh, it's irrational." It's not irrational. That's not quite right. And when people say, "Oh, I support Donald Trump because he says what he thinks." Now, that's not it either. It's it's deeper than that. Some people will say, oh, I support him because he's not politically correct. Uh, like, it's deeper than that. I think deep down, people support him because he's, he's the quintessential alpha warrior male. And in our hyper-feminized, girly man culture, people are craving this. And I think people interpret it as, well, he's not PC. And he's not. Don't get me wrong, he's not. But it's, it's deeper than that, even. Why is he not PC? He's not PC because he's an alpha warrior male. There's no time for that. It's not because he's not a politician. There's a couple people running who are not politicians. It's because he is a man. And for generations, since the dawn of time, the strong warrior male leadership is the type of leadership that has sustained the human race. And we know this deep down in our souls. We know this. We know like we gravitate. I think deep down in our brains and our in our hearts, we gravitate towards men like this as leaders. Always have, always have. Now, over the last couple generations, uh, well, po- po- politics has become a uh, gentlemanly pursuit, and we need to be uh, polite, and we need to be this, and we need to be correct, and we need to not offend people, and we need to. Who who in, who's the most recent politician you can think of who's a man's man? Like who? I like. <laughs> I have no idea. Teddy Roosevelt? Like I, I really have no idea who's like Reagan. Yeah, Reagan, Reagan, right? A man's man. But other than that, who who's? Do you think Barack Obama's a man's man? No. What like and we 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 like we like men who are strong. We like men who aren't distracted. 
We like men who quash things that are in their way. We gravitate towards men who build things. I think there's something also really primal about the fact that it's not that Trump's a businessman. It's that he builds things. And for all of human history, go back to ancient Rome, the emperors who build things command control and command power and command uh, uh, influence. And I think there's something to that with Trump as well. This is why I say this. Trump is not a clown. And a lot of people brush him off at your own peril. Trump is not a clown. He's not a bloviating buffoon. He's not a really rich guy just hoping to buy something new, as in the presidency. Let me read this one sentence here from this, uh, this uh, scientist here. He says, Trump is ambitious to a fault, relentless in his desire to control, own, and build, and has success written into the DNA of every cell of his body. Now, that may be a little over top in, in his praise, but I agree to the, to the, with the general point here. People have said that supporting Trump is irrational. No, it's not. It's, it's primal. And again, that's okay. I'm not saying it's good or bad. I think being primal, the primal urges, again, are good, generally. Um, again, fight or flight, that's a primal reaction to something. like That's a good thing. Uh, but it's not, in the support of Trump, it's not irrational. It's not something to overlook, and it's not something to brush off. And again, I think it's in reaction to a culture that is becoming more and more feminized. I read someone said that Ann Coulter is the last real man of the intellectual right. <laughs> and I, I think that might be true. The strong warrior male leadership hasn't been here for a while in American politics. Now, if I may, first of all, what are your thoughts on that? one 888 Do you think there's something there? And again, I'm not, this isn't good or bad. I'm not saying you shouldn't support Trump for this. I'm not saying you should support Trump for this. I'm just saying, I'm just trying to analyze what's happening here because no one has any idea what's going on. Like, like no one, no one observing it. People like people on media, especially are so like, what is happening? The political campaigns of other candidates have no clue what to do with it. And I, th- I think it's because no one's, no politician has been able to tap into this before, at least not at any time recently. And when I brought this analysis to my local show, I said, I'm going to get 10 emails from people saying, how dare you support Donald Trump? And I'm going to get 10 emails from people saying, how dare you not support Donald Trump? Like, and it's not about that. I'm just trying to look at it from a 30,000 foot perspective and say, what is happening here? Now, if I can add some opinion, I like that human beings are naturally attracted to strong leaders. I think that's good. The thing is, I don't just want someone who speaks to our anger and frustration and makes us more angry and more frustrated. I want someone who directs our frustration and anger into something aspirational, into something bigger, into something purposeful. The great leaders of human history did not just get people mad and they didn't just promise to do things. They inspired people to do things. Let me read one, one quote here. 
Uh, this is Winston Churchill, who was one of those aspirational leaders, without a doubt. He wrote a book called My Early Life. And I love this paragraph right here. He said, come on now, all you young men all over the world. You are needed more than ever now to fill the gap of a generation shorn by the war. You have not an hour to lose. You must take your places in life's fighting line. 20 to 25, these are your years. Don't be content with things as they are. The earth is yours in the fullness thereof, quoting from the Bible. Enter upon your inheritance. Accept your responsibilities. Raise the glorious flags again and advance them upon the new enemies who constantly gather upon the front of any human army and have only to be assaulted to be overthrown. Don't take no for an answer. Never submit to failure. And do not be uh, fobbed off. They'd be like, do not be uh, distracted, I guess. Do not be distracted uh, by mere personal success or acceptance. You're going to make all kinds of mistakes, but as long as you are generous and true and also fierce, you cannot hurt the world or even seriously distress her. She was made to be wooed and won by youth. I love that paragraph so much because Winston Churchill was an alpha male who called people to higher things. Here he is calling the 20 to 25 year olds of, of uh, England, calling them to a higher purpose. That's what a real leader does. And that's what a, a strong warrior alpha male does. So you decide if Trump does that. one 888 Slater Radio on Twitter. Slater Radio on Twitter. Mike Slater Show, the Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. Mike Slater. On the Blaze Radio Network. This is Mike Slater. So we were just talking during the break, uh, me and the guys back in New York, about physical strength, which I think Trump personifies, and intellectual strength, which many people would argue Trump personifies, but I'd say Ben Carson. Ben Carson's objectively one of the smartest people ever to walk the face of the earth, right? I mean, you could make an argument he's one of the smartest people ever. Uh, I would say, and he's second place so far. I would say that Teddy Roosevelt is probably the most balanced president in our history when it comes to that. Now, we're not talking about policy. We're just talking about posture and and presentation. Um, The man was an alpha male to the extreme. And I don't even want to say he was an alpha male, but super smart, too, because I think an alpha male means you're also super smart, Um, not just physically strong. He read, Teddy Roosevelt read the Iliad and the Odyssey in Greek twice in his life once on horseback when he was a cattle rancher out west and again when he was in the white house so tell me what's more manly than that that is a full interpretation of what it means to be a man physically and intellectually and he was actually born a a pretty sickly kid and his dad told him he had to um, his dad said something like teddy you have the mind but you don't have the body And without the help of the body, the mind can't go as far as it should. So I'm giving you the tools, and it's up to you to make your body. And he did. He got jacked. and um, He was a boxer and a rower in Harvard. And when he graduated, a doctor told him that he has heart issues and should take a desk job. Uh, So he went and climbed Matterhorn. 
<laughs> not like the real one, not the one at Disneyland. I think America is thirsting for that. Right? We 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 like we want leaders who have scars. We want men who have accomplished feats of greatness. I, I don't think people like Trump because oh he's not a politician. They they like him because he's achieved. He's achieved something other than winning a higher office. And he brags about it. You know it. Everyone knows it. Right? And again, go to Ben Carson. I mean, there there's a man who separated the first person to separate Siamese twins conjoined by the head. So he also achieved something of note, but he doesn't brag about it. And also that thing's kind of nerdy. I think that people want someone who builds towers and golf courses and wineries and casinos. And I think it's a deep, primal urge. And uh, I have no idea how any other candidate is going to overcome that. Wait till he brings out his wife and his daughter in the campaign trail, too. Mike Slater Show, The Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. You're listening to Mike Slater. Part of the next generation of talk radio. On the Blaze Radio Network. And go for Mike Slater in three, two, one. You're listening to Mike Slater. Part of the next generation of talk radio. Only on the Blaze Radio Network. Sanders, America's the greatest country in the world. Thanks for being here. So we're just uh, chatting about regular people stepping up, saving the day. Stopping gunmen. And I'm not just talking about the three Americans on that train in France, but people in D.C., people in Louisiana, taking down gunmen before the authorities even arrive. I want to chat for a second about the difference between a herd and a pack. Politicians, our superiors, view the people as a herd. We're a herd of sheep. They are our shepherds. Glenn Reynolds says, without close supervision, they assume that we, the people, will erupt into mob violence or scatter in fear. Or I would say, Uh, Otherwise, if it wasn't for them, we'd be lost and lonely and lacking purpose in our lives. But good thing they're here. The great shepherds are here to move the herd to their liking and move the herd to what they believe is our best interest. But I would argue we're not a herd. We're not subjects. We're a pack. There's a big difference. A herd has a shepherd to be led by. A pack does the leading. During 9-11... The evacuation of the towers. All the witnesses say, of course, it was a bit panicked, naturally, but still orderly. People helping people get out. People volunteering to clear floors, making sure everyone was gone. Incredibly effective. 3,000 people died that day. I think 50,000 people work in those towers. So that evacuation's pretty good in a short amount of time, and it happened all before the government arrived. Why? Because we're not a herd. We're a pack. People didn't, like, wait. (laughs) They're like, we got to get out of here, and we're going to help each other do it. One of the most impressive stories from 9-11 
was the story of the ferry operators around New York City. And everyone who, who operated a boat around the city all helped in the evacuation of people from lower Manhattan. There was a swarm, hundreds of boats converged on lower Manhattan to help people get as far away from possible. There were no commands. There were no orders. People just worked together naturally to save lives. And they did it for four days until federal authorities took over. Think about that. Four days until authorities took over. The people were there immediately and they stayed for four days until the Fed said, okay, we got it from here. Four days. I actually want to play some audio of that coming up in a couple of segments here, but I want to stay on this point here, that we are not trusted. Do you remember the D.C. sniper? Remember that story? That was wild. That was uh, 2002. It was 13 years ago. For 23 days around Washington, D.C., people would just be at a gas station and they'd get shot in the head. By a sniper, and they didn't. People had no idea where they were coming from, and people were scared to go anywhere. Do you know who caught the shooter? Do you, do you remember? Go back, go back thirteen years. Do you remember who caught the DC sniper? Twenty-three days of sheer terror. Who caught him? Would you believe me if I told you? That it was a refrigerator repairman. Refrigerator repairman. Whitney Donahue was his name. The police did not want to leak the information about the suspect's car and license number. They didn't, they didn't want to, I don't want to say they want to leak it. They didn't want to tell anyone. They didn't want to tell the public the car and license number. So someone leaked it. Someone in the police department leaked it. And when they did, Whitney Donahue heard it, a refrigerator repairman. He was walking through a parking lot, saw a van that matched the description in the license plate, called police, waited on the phone for two hours until police arrived. That's how they caught the D.C. sniper, a refrigerator repairman. Now, if I can quote Glenn Reynolds one last time here, he says, the problem is this, meaning empowering people, this goes against the very grain of intelligence agencies and law enforcement agencies. Within bureaucracies in general, information is power. And power is not something you want to share. And if you deputize a nation, doesn't that make the official deputies just a little bit less special? The problem with this mindset is that it's all about bureaucratic turf and not about getting the job done. Now, you can think that's a little exaggerated. I don't. Uh, look at the Second Amendment. What are the people who are against that? Like, so a couple of years back, it would have been three years ago, two, two, three years ago, I talked to the San Diego police chief. He's not the chief anymore. He retired. But um, I talked to him. It was, he was in support of uh, Dianne Feinstein, our U.S. senator in California, Dianne Feinstein's gun control bill. So the chief of police came out in support of banning these guns and these whatever. Is all. So we had him on the air. And he ar- tried to argue why that's the best thing, banning these guns. And you've heard all the arguments before. And I will never forget his answer to my last question. I said, sir, if someone is breaking into your, not your house, but one of our listeners' house, my house. Let's say someone's breaking into my house. What's your advice for me? You know what he said? I'll never forget. 
He said, hide, call 911, and make sure you give an accurate description of the house. Make sure you give an accurate description of your house. So that's what... He's the chief of police. You would think the chief of police... Like I, I yearn for the day when a chief of police says, hey, everyone in my city here, we at the police department, we're offering free gun, uh, gun classes. So if you want to learn how to, uh, how to shoot a gun, how to properly store a gun, how to be a law-abiding, safe gun owner to protect your family, to help us in our job of keeping people safe, if you would like, if you would like to know how to do that, we would be happy to tell you because that's our job. To keep the American people safe and, and, and to keep the people of San Diego or whatever city safe. That's our job. So come down to the police department. These times, we're going to have gun safety classes all together, and then you can get your permit at the end of it for whatever, 100 bucks. I, I, I yearn for that day. Instead, the chief of police in San Diego says, give an accurate description of your house. So that's what that is. You can't be trusted with guns. You can't. I mean, you're just going to go killing people with it. So leave it to the trained professionals. Same mentality, not trusting we, the people. And to be honest, I'm not even, I'm not even waiting for that day anymore. It's time we take that authority back. Consider yourself deputized. Now my local show, we encourage, we have a, a gun store sponsor. We encourage everyone to go get, take a gun safety class. Uh, actually, tomorrow, uh, I just threw this out here on my local show after the, we were talking about the three Americans on the train in France. And I said, you know, would anyone listening now, I totally just threw this out on a whim. I said, is there anyone listening now who would be interested in taking uh, a Krav Maga class? Krav Maga is the self-defense that's used by the Israeli defense forces. Would, would anyone be, and it's, and it's all, it's not a martial art. Like a martial art is beautiful and pretty. This is like punch you in the neck, like, like, like eliminate the threat as quickly and efficiently as possible. That's what crowd my God is. I said, is anyone interested in doing that? I was like, maybe, I don't know if 20 people call in right now. Um, I don't know. We'll find a time and we can all take a class together. hundred phone calls. Literally got a hundred people on sat on Sunday, tomorrow. We are uh, having classes all day long in two-hour spurts on Krav Maga. <laughs> right, so, and, and, we had, and I didn't even know anyone to, tra- to teach it. And it turns out we have Krav Maga trainers who are listening. are like, I'd love to help teach it. So all Sunday, after church, all night, like every two hours, we got another 20 people coming in, and we're going to take Krav Maga classes. Because everyone needs to take it upon themselves to be deputized. So that if you're ever in that situation, you can keep your family safe. Because it's only up to you. Otherwise, you're going to wait four days for the, te- the, for the federal government to tell you to uh, get your boat and evacuate people from ground zero. Are you going to wait for the, the firefighter to come up and tell you to, to help clear floors or whatever? Are you going to hide behind your seat on a train until the police arrive to take out that terrorist? Like, no, we're, not, we're not waiting anymore. It's time we take initiative again. We've had this trend of running, running towards and relying on institutions for protection. I would rather rely on a confident 
and self-reliant citizenry. That's the best way to keep America safe. Forget about TSA, right? It's not TSA that's going to keep us safe. They're terrible at keeping us safe. Remember they had uh, Homeland Security did tried to get 70 weapons through TSA. They got 67 of them through. TSA failed 95% of the time. Okay? They're they're awful. They could almost not be worse. But it's not TSA that prevents terrorists from hijacking airplanes. It's Todd Beamer and all the people who are on Flight 93 because the terrorists know that next time they hijack an airplane, the people aren't going to sit back in their seat and wait till it's flown into a building. They're going to take initiative right away. Todd Beamer has done more to prevent a terrorist attack than TSA could ever dream of. And it's that mentality of a deputized, confident, self-reliant citizenry. It's the only thing that's going to help our country and save our country and keep our country safe. And all the people in power are doing everything they can to prevent you from being confident and self-reliant. So don't let them anymore. I don't know. Maybe get your friends together. Take a Krav Maga class. Call, call a local Krav Maga trainer and say, hey, listen, we want to pay you 20 bucks a person. Can you find a time? And I got you know friends from church or my buddies here. And we don't want to be sheepdog. Or we don't want to be sheep. We want to be sheepdogs. At least know the basics. Can you give us a two-hour class? 20 bucks, two hours. And... Uh, yeah, I'll give you 20 people and we, we can have a, a fun afternoon. Or not. And just wait for the government to tell you what to do. 1-888-900-3393. Mike Slater Show, The Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. This is Mike Slater on The Blaze Radio Network. listening to Mike Slater. Right, we got some time here. Let's play these clips right here. This is... So we were just talking about the Americans who, who stopped um, the terrorist attack in France. And other Americans who have stepped up and saved lives. And then we were talking about just the spontaneous order of, of how we're not a herd, we, we're a pack. And I mentioned this, uh, what happened on 9-11 with the boats that were all around lower Manhattan and regular people evacuating as many people as possible from ground zero. This is a little mini documentary that was done of that, uh, evacuation. It's narrated by Tom Hanks. I just want to pay, uh, play a couple clips of it right here. Clip one. There was a small boat that was uh, at the lower tip of Manhattan. I thought the boat was going to flip over because so many people were trying to get on. And as I looked behind there, they were just 10 deep. That's kind of what gave us the idea. We decided that this has to get better organized and we better do it. And that's what we did. So we decided to make the call on the radio. All available boats. This is the United States Coast Guard board, the pilot boat from New York. Anyone want to help with the evacuation of Lower Manhattan? Report to Governor's Island. When that call came on the radio, they were coming. I was uncertain of who was going to respond. About 15, 20 minutes later, there are just boats all across the horizon. Literally 100 targets converging on the lower part of Manhattan. When we came out of that dust cloud, tugboats, 
I've never seen so many tugboats all at once. It was just a, like a fleet of tugboats headed to Manhattan. If it floated and it could get there, it got there. All different size tapes involved. I mean, and they were zooming across this water. Ferries, private boats, party boats. I worked on the water for 28 years. I've never seen that many boats come together one time that fast. One radio call and it just came together just that fast. I love it. All the Coast Guard said was, we need your help. And people came swarming to help. Now you're probably thinking, that's a nice sentiment. But what are those boats going to do when they get there, right? These are tugboat operators. These are fishing boats, right? They they don't know what to do in an emergency situation. We need highly trained government employees to make this evacuation work. There's no way regular people can be effective here. Clip two. And then out of nowhere, you just kept on seeing people coming. They looked like zombies coming through the fog, and you knew that those were human beings. Don't leave us. Please don't leave us here. Take us. At that point, the Coast Guard said, not how many people are you allowed, how many people can you fit? Come on, guys, anybody coming? Get up here now! Now! Come on! Boats started hanging, literally would take a bedsheet off a bunk and, and a can of spray paint and paint their destination on. Some of these people never been in the water, never been on a boat before. Housewives, workers that do windows. We had executives. And the thing that was the best, everyone helped everyone. I want you to hold my hand. Come on board. Get inside. One at a time. Get inside. I saw four businessmen lifting up an old woman with a seeing eye dog, a German shepherd, and they lifted her up like a surfboard and passed her over the handrails. When we would carry a load of people over, and there was somebody standing there that seen her husband or wife, you know, that made us feel even better, you know. Well, at least we got two back together, you know. So keep on going, you know. <laughs> Doesn't get any better than that. Here we have a, a profound tragedy, chaos, death, destruction, and regular people with no training, no orders, helping people. And this, I'm a, an hour before this, an executive in the window washer, they had nothing in common, it seemed. And the Wall Street banker and the old blind lady, they had no business knowing each other. And here they are working together. And that's the power of unity and common purpose. And we're all capable of it. One last clip here. The guy that works at the ferry, he's a, a welder. His son was on my boat. He, he actually came up. Uh, We went back and forth all day long, carrying boatloads, as many as our our boat would hold. And it's a lot of people. A lot of people. You couldn't have planned nothing to happen that fast, that quick. No training. This was just people doing what they had to do that day. You forget all about what you're supposed to do, what to teach you in school, and you say, you know what? Morally, this is the right way to go, and deep down, this is what I'm going to do. Average people, they stepped up and, uh, when they needed to. They showed me, you know, when the American people need to come together and pull together, they will do it. I do feel a way honored that I was a part of it. 
It was the greatest thing I ever did with my life. The greatest day that I've ever seen in all my boating, I mean, my life on the water. The Great Boat Lift of 9-11 became the largest sea evacuation in history. Larger than the evacuation of Dunkirk in World War II, where 339,000 British and French soldiers were rescued over the course of nine days. On 9-11, nearly 500,000 civilians were rescued from Manhattan by boat. It took less than nine hours. I believe somebody has a little hero in them. You gotta look in. And it's in there. It'll come out. It need to be. I have one theory in life. I never want to say the word I should have. If I do it and I fail, I tried. If I do it and I succeed, better for me. And I tell my children the same thing. Never go through life saying you should have. If you want to do something, you do it. Mike Slater, part of the next generation of talk radio on the Blaze Radio Network. Crusaders, I want to read from a, uh, a comic book here. This is the first edition comic of a superhero. So the question is, what superhero is this? And you can leave your answer on Twitter, Slater Radio on Twitter, S-L-A-T-E-R Radio. What superhero did this? So there's a, uh, a major crime taking place. In someone's house. So the superhero goes to 211 Court Ave. And he breaks through the door. He busts it down. And he says, hold it. And there's a man standing there with a belt. And the man says, what do you want? And this superhero lifts the man in the air with one arm. And the guy says, don't get tough. And the superhero says, tough is putting it mildly. The treatment you're going to get. And he throws the guy against a wall and it shatters the mirror that's on the wall and he says you're not fighting a woman now and that's it that's the end that's the uh, that's the end of the scene what superhero is that first edition of a superhero 1-800 uh, 1-888-900-33 or no, you don't have to call sorry leave it on Twitter Slater Radio on Twitter S-L-A-T-E-R Radio Slater Radio on Twitter what superhero is that why do I bring this up kicked off the show talking about the the three Americans on that train in France taking down the terrorists then we talked about what that has to do with the appeal of Donald Trump and I think they're related to each other I do in short I think for the for the past decade or so we have lived in an effeminate metrosexual weak politically correct wussified girly man culture and we have also politically created a country a culture where we have turned ourselves into subjects we're not citizens anymore we're subjects we wait for permission from the government for everything real quick just an example of that 
I uh, when we proposed the other day, just on a whim, I said, "Hey, is anyone listening?" This is on my local show. I was like, "Anyone listening? Maybe want to take a Krav Maga class?" Uh, I don't know. Maybe maybe we get twenty people. I thought maybe five people maybe calling. Like maybe we get twenty people and we can find some guy to do like a two hour training on Sunday or something. I was like, "Does anyone want to do it? Call in. We got a hundred people who call in. Okay. Uh, we're doing it on Sunday." I got a call from yesterday. I got a call from someone at the parks department who said, "Why do we have so many, why do we have so many people calling this rec center?" And I was like, "I don't know." And they said, "Are you hosting an event here?" And I was like, "Well, I don't know if we're hosting an event. We're having you know twenty people at a time come and whatever." And they're like, "You need a permit for that." And I said, "What are you talking about? <laughs> what? what do you mean we need a permit? We're having twenty of my friends." Come down to a park and hang it out. What's the problem? And apparently in San Diego, you need a permit to do anything that involves more than four people. (laughs) So if you want to do three-on-three volleyball, you need to get a permit from the city of San Diego to use a park. What are you talking about? Like that, that is a, you're a subject. If you have to get a permit for five people to hang out at the park, then you're not a citizen anymore. You're a tax paying subject. But anyway, I don't want to get off topic. It's, it's all tomorrow. We're not getting a permit. So it's tomorrow. So we'll let you know how it all goes. My point is these three Americans in France, they were real men. They risked their lives to save everyone on that train. Trump, politically, he is the archetype alpha warrior male. He talks about winning. He talks about crushing enemies and pile driving through everyone that's in his way. And since the dawn of time, people have followed strong male leaders. Now, whether you think Trump will make a good president or not, he's a strong Man, and, I, and he builds things, and I think that appeals to people on a primal level. That's what we talked about the first hour of the show. Because what other candidate is a man? Like a real man? Is Obama a man's man? Come on. I, I, and I don't mean this disparagingly. Please take this in the, the, how I intend it. No average, regular Joe in America, like no, there's no blue-collar guy in America who deep down wants to be Ted Cruz. Now, don't get me wrong. There's people who admire Ted Cruz. I love to big Ted Cruz fan, but there's no one deep down who's like, oh, I wish I could be the Solicitor General of Texas. Like, oh, if only, if only I'd made different life choices, then I could have been the president of the debate team at Harvard. Like, no one, no blue-collar guy, to, but blue-collar men want to be Trump. Because he's rich, famous, and he's got a hot wife, right? They all like people think that's that's the dream, and there's this primal desire to follow a strong, successful man who builds tall buildings. Now I know there's people who are like, that's not true for me. I'm not saying you, I'm saying for a lot of people in America. So to tie these things together, I think we're seeing a reemergence of manliness in America. Everything's on a pendulum, and we've swinged to one side for a while, and now we're on our way to swinging back to manliness. Now, there's going to be a learning curve on what that means exactly, because I, kn- I don't think that 
having a couple wives. And I don't think those are manly things, right? So we have to define what manliness really is. So there's a little bit of a learning curve that we're on right now as we sort of go back into this uh, world of our culture, or this type of culture. Uh, we got to try to figure it out. But I think that's the direction we're moving. Now, my definition of manliness on manhood, on what it means to be a man, very simply, you protect the most vulnerable. That, that's it. That's what I'm going to teach my son. You always protect the most vulnerable around you. Always. The comic book that I'd mentioned in the beginning of this segment, where this superhero broke into someone's house and saw him beating his wife picked him up in the air and said you're not fighting a woman now and threw him up against the wall someone just tweeted me dick tracy nope that was the very first comic book of Superman. Superman was not yet fighting Lex Luthor or Bizarro Superman. He was helping innocent people, vulnerable people, protecting abused women from their husbands. That is what Superman did. There's another scene in his first comic where he goes to the governor's house. And he's wearing a cape and his suit and everything. And the butler of the governor's mansion says, oh, the governor's sleeping in his room. You can't go in there. So Superman pushes him aside and tries to open up the door. And the butler says, it's locked and it's made of steel. Go ahead and try and knock this door down. So Superman rips the steel door right in half off the wall. And he walks inside and the governor's sleeping. And Superman says, Evelyn Curry is being electrocuted in 15 minutes for murder, and I have proof of her innocence. And the governor calls the jail, tells them to stop the execution. And the next frame, uh, it's back at the, the jail. And there's an officer running in the room where the electric chair is, and she's all strapped in it. And he says, stop, the governor has pardoned her. And the woman says, I told you I was innocent. That's it. That's, that's the end. <laughs> that's the end of the comic so S Superman's great superhuman achievement was waking up the governor to let an innocent woman off death row which is awesome don't get me wrong but it's not exactly the superhuman man of steel things that we think of today when it comes to Superman but that was the first Superman Superman was the hero for the little guy fighting dare dare I say fighting for social justice fighting for morality fighting against corruption the third scene in that first comic there's three the third scene is he stops a congressman from signing a piece of legislation that he promised a lobbyist he would sign that's what it is that's that, I mean, that's heroism and that's what we're all capable of. that's my point of this entire hour We are all capable of this. So think about it. Superman's first three heroic deeds wake the governor up to try to get an innocent woman off death row, 
stop a man who's beating his wife and stop a lawmaker from passing a corrupt piece of legislation. <laughs> we can do all those things. We're all capable of that, whether you can leap a tall building in a single bound or not. And not only are we all capable of it, we're the only, we must do it. one 93 Mike Slater Show, The Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. Mike Slater. We'll continue in a moment on The Blaze Radio Network. Um, a couple minutes. Here. Do one last thought on this topic, and then we'll move on to uh, some politics, which we haven't really touched on today at all. Charles Wagner wrote a book, 1901, called Courage. This is what he said. He said, when we study the history of humanity, we see heroes appearing at the beginning of every great movement. Their example is contagious. Earlier, we were talking about the three Americans on the train, but it wasn't just the three Americans who took down the terrorists. So did a British businessman. It's one of my favorite parts of the story because the British businessman, when he heard the gunshots, his immediate reaction was to hide. His immediate reaction was to just run behind, hide behind the seat and just wait to be shot. But when he saw the Americans run, and jump on the terrace, that's when he decided to join in. Courage is contagious. And here, um, Charles Wagner is saying the same thing uh, 114 years ago. Their example is contagious. It is their privilege to arouse enthusiasm, hope, and light. They are the saviors of hopeless times, the guides in dark days, the pioneers of the future, the pure and noble victims who die for justice and truth in order to pave the way for them. And I'm not speaking here of our illustrious heroes, but of those obscure, unknown, unnamed heroes of whom the world is full. Jamie Harrington was walking down the street. He saw a man sitting on the edge of a bridge. Walked over to the man, asked him if everything was okay. And the man said, yeah, yeah, sure, everything's fine, everything's fine. But Jamie could tell something was wrong. Now, Jamie had a place to go. He was on his way somewhere. But he said, oh, this is more important. So he hopped up and sat on the edge of the bridge with the man. The man's about 30 years old. They talked for 45 minutes on that bridge. Just, Just talked. Mostly listened, I suppose. And then they got down together. And Jamie said, sorry, I, I have to, I, I'd like to call the ambulance. And the man said, no, no, I'm fine. I'm totally fine. I'm just going to get out of here. I'm fine. It's good. I don't, I don't need an ambulance. Don't call an ambulance. And Jamie said, oh, man, listen, uh, just so I can sleep at night, knowing you're okay, I, I really I, got, I have to call the ambulance here. The guy's like, all right. So the ambulance came. Took him away. That was it. Saved a life. 
Three months later, just the other day, Jamie got a phone call. It was that man. And he told Jamie that he was just about to jump when Jamie walked up to him and said, are you okay? He was just about to jump. Turns out he was going to jump because he was stressed at work. Just didn't know what he was going to do when his wife was pregnant. Thought he was going to lose his job and then he had all the responsibilities of his family now. His wife still is pregnant, I should say. And this man, he just wanted to call Jamie and say thank you. And wanted to let Jamie know that they're naming their son Jamie. After the man who saved dad's life by asking, are you okay? Obscure, unknown, unnamed heroes of whom the world is full. Love it. 1-888-933-93. 1-888-933-93. want to come back. Talk about Ben Carson here for a second. Because Ben Carson has the opportunity, if he plays this right, to turn the Black Lives Matter movement into something really productive and really powerful and really meaningful. And it's not going to be him. I don't want to put it all on him. It's going to require some obscure, unknown, unnamed heroes of whom the inner cities are full. But Ben Carson plays a key role. We'll break it down and how I think the Black Lives Matter movement actually has a really positive future. For good. We'll explain next. You're listening to Mike Slater on the Blaze Radio Network. Mike Slater in three, two, one. You're listening to Mike Slater, part of the next generation of talk radio, only on the Blaze Radio Network. We were sitting on the couch watching television, and they break into normal broadcasting because there's a full-blown riot in downtown, well, not downtown, but midtown St. Louis in the neighborhood I grew up in, the Walnut Park, Wells, Goodfellow, that area, North City. And... The police executed a search warrant. Um, Suspects are in the house. They're running from the police, shooting at the police. And the police shot one of the suspects, and he was killed. And from what we understand, he had a gun. And it was a stolen weapon. Jamila died the day before. I didn't hear anything on it on the news, and I'm an avid news watcher. Nothing was about, nothing was reported. It was just a blip. This guy dies, this bay guy dies, and all of a sudden, there's a full-blown riot in the neighborhood I grew up in. And there's nothing for her. And we're hollering, Black Lives Matter. He had his chance to matter. He chose his path. He chose his destiny. Jamila never got her destiny. She never got her promises. Her, her life mattered. Her dreams mattered. Her vision mattered. She could have been the next Secretary of State. She could have been the next 
attorney general. She never got a chance. This is Mike Slater. Uh, Jamila Bolden's grandmother was in her home. It's 930 at night. And all she heard were bullets flying through windows and in walls. It was a drive-by. She was hit in the leg, but all grandma could think about was to run into her daughter's room and see if her granddaughter, Jamila, was okay. Okay, uh, She was shot. She was shot, still breathing, so grandma called 911. And in the meantime, waiting for them to get there, she just held her granddaughter tight. Told her everything was going to be all right. Two officers got there before the ambulance, and they tried desperately to keep Jamila alive, but she died. That woman you just heard in that video, no relation to the family. She just, she made a video about how outrageous it is that the Black Lives Matter protesters don't seem to care. They they don't care about that murder. They don't care about her black life. This nine-year-old killed in a drive-by shooting. By the way, please think that, that, as if this makes a difference, they think the shooter had the wrong house. Killing a nine-year-old in the process. Tough man, right? By the way, the house next to this one has a sign in the front window, and the sign says, we must stop killing each other. And I like that that gives me hope. People are starting to wake up. It doesn't say stop police brutality, which is also something that should be stopped, but it says we must stop killing each other first and foremost. Now, there was a gathering for Jamila. About 200 people showed up. Much less than you know what the other protesters have been showing up for. This was in Ferguson, by the way. Sorry to have mentioned that. This was in Ferguson. And one activist at that vigil said, if we seriously mean Black Lives Matter, then we all have to be serious about how Black Lives Matter. Ben Carson, you, you get all that. I don't need to hit that home anymore. Ben Carson wrote a fantastic column in USA Today. And he said the same thing that we've all been saying for a while here. That the Black Lives Matter protesters, they're going after Bernie Sanders and they're going after Hillary Clinton. They're talking to the wrong people. What are you doing at a Bernie Sanders rally? Like, <laughs> Give me a break. I think a week or two ago, I said they should be talking to conservatives. Black Lives Matter protesters should be talking to conservatives because we're way more sympathetic to their cause than progressives. And progressives have been taking certain groups of people for granted for decades. You think all of a sudden they're going to care? They don't have to care to get your vote. Unless they don't think so. But it's more than just getting votes. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to get sidetracked by getting votes. It's not about that. It's about truly saving lives. Ben Carson grew up in the worst poverty in the worst city for poverty in the country, Detroit. His two cousins were killed right where he played tag in baseball growing up. And he says his mom kept him out of trouble with the very powerful weapon of a library card. She she wasn't going to rallies of socialist senators from tiny rural states, right? She wasn't, she, she wasn't worried about what Bernie Sanders is going to do. She, she was worried about the gangbangers down the block and the drug dealers across the street killing her boys. So Ben Carson knows. Ben Carson 
Forget about Trump for a second, and I do want to say one more thing about Trump coming up. Ben Carson has such potential. Forget about the presidential race. Ben Carson is as I've never given money to a political uh, political camp. I don't think I ever will. But and I don't want to say this without like sounding like an endorsement. I I, I think Ben Carson. I would donate money to Ben Carson. Just so that he has a platform to spread a message that he is, I don't want to say uniquely qualified, but almost uniquely qualified to spread around the country. It's, it's, it's so important that Ben Carson's in this race. Because he has a platform now to step up and say, listen, Black Lives Matter protesters, I'm with you. Okay? I, grew, I know exactly what you're talking about. I know exactly what you're living through. My mom, I think she had a fourth grade education, okay? Left by her husband, who was a bigamist. He had a whole other family that we didn't know about. Single mom, abject poverty. Mom couldn't read, but she still made us do book reports that she would mark up with a red pen, just making random red marks to make it seem like she knew what, what she was doing, to make it seem like she was correcting our papers. So I get it. I get it, all right? So Black Lives Matter protesters, let's get fired up. Let's get organized. And let's head down to the local board of education. That's what Ben Carson is saying. Let's go. Let's come on. Let's keep these rallies going. Let's go down to the local board of education. Don't go to the Bernie Sanders rally. Go to the board of education because those bureaucracies have destroyed not just one or two lives, but entire generations of black lives. Let me just say that's Ben Carson speaking. That's not me. I happen to agree, but that's Ben Carson speaking. And if anyone wants to refute that, <laughs> that bureaucracy, the Department of Education has destroyed generations of black lives. I will gladly have that conversation if you want. Here in San Diego, uh, we have Lincoln High. There's about four, uh, I think four inner city schools. Um, Lincoln High is, they just spent, I think, $285 million to renovate it. 19% of the kids are proficient at math. 19%. Well, you think they're going to graduate and, uh, and live successful lives? San Diego Unified, a majority of kids at San Diego Unified can't read at grade level. What, what? Carson says their failures, the Department of Education, their failures don't kill as quickly. But they do kill as surely as a bullet. That is a bold sentence there, sir. So Carson says, all right, let's get fired up. Let's head down to the local board of education. And then when we're done with them, let's head down the street. Let's confront the entertainment industry. Straight out of Compton's the big movie right now. And uh, Dr. Dre is having a, a bunch of allegations thrown out there that he's, he's beat women. Okay, so their lives matter too, right? Talking about object, objectifying women. Do black women lives matter? I hear this stuff like black, black, tra- trans black people's lives matter. That's like a thing. Right? Okay, they do. Uh, but so do black women's lives. And look at how women are treated and stuff, you know? Okay, so let's go down. Let's protest them. Let's protest them. Okay, and then we're done with that, right? We're going to head down to our local crack house, Ben Carson says. We're going to gather up Black Lives Matter. Let's do this. We're going to go to the local crack house. We're going to tear it down. Because they profit from selling poison to our children. And if we don't tear it down, then other children look at that 
And that becomes their ambition for them to sell poison to other children. He said, these monuments to our destruction deserve our active scorn, not our silent acceptance. Okay, you good? You good Black Lives Matter puts it? Now we're making some difference here, right? We're going, we're going to support of education. We're going to the entertainment industry. We're going to our local crack house. Then we're going to go to the Democratic uh, Party. That's what he says. He said, let's tell them we don't want to be clothed, fed, and housed. We want honor and dignity. We want the skills needed to compete, not a consolation prize of Section 8, food stamps, and a lifetime of government paperwork. And then once we're done with that, we're going to head to the Republican Party. And we're going to say, you've been ignoring us for far too long. Excellent stuff from the good doctor. True solutions. And you know what? I, I really... Mm. I really think people want to hear this. I really think people are ready for this. I think, I think people in the inner cities are sick of it. Sick of it. You know, Trump yesterday, here I am doing a segment about Carson, and I mentioned Trump. You can't, you can't, you can't run away from him. Uh, a CNN reporter asked him, uh, Trump, what do you think about all the protesters at your rally? And he said something like, you from CNN? Yeah, you're terrible. There's thousands of people here at my rally, and there's a couple protesters outside. And you want to ask me about the protesters? Stop trying to make that the, the thing. <laughs> Let's focus on the thousands of people who are here. Not the, the tens of people who are protesting. I think it's the same thing with our inner cities. We focus on the tens of people who are either protesting or whatever. I, I want to focus on the thousands of people who are sick of it. Because I think there's way more. And once those people wake up and Ben Carson has a great opportunity to wake them up, then the pathetic race baiting Black Lives Matter protesters will be drowned out by the actions of people who demand better. I really see the opportunity for the Black Lives Matter movement to be taken over and turned into something productive. Because there's a lot of people on the ground who are doing good work in our inner cities. So I think this movement can be taken over and turned into something good, partly because of good men like Ben Carson and other community leaders. Big opportunity here. Slater Radio on Twitter, one 888 Mike Slater, show the Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. You're listening to Mike Slater on the Blaze Radio Network. Slater on the Blaze Radio Network. Slater Radio on Twitter. Uh, I want to give my I'll do one last thing about Donald Trump coming up in the uh, in the next segment. But there's been a theme of the show that we've been uh, bouncing around back and forth with, and that is uh, empowering. Uh, I, I wish I wish we had a government that empowered people to solve problems as opposed to a government that views people as a problem to solve. And the reason, you know, I, I just thought of this because I'm, we were just talking about education, but right. Ben Carson saying, Hey, black lives matter protesters. I'm with you. Let's go down. Let's gather up. Let's, let's go down to the local board of education. 
Let's empower families to be in charge of their own kids' education again. I I can't wait for the day when, when we're allowed to have education entrepreneurs rise up and completely transform this 100-year-old system and allow it to enter into the 21st century. In the last 100 years, we changed the way we do everything, except for education. Oh, but we use iPads now. Whatever. I'm talking about really changing the system. And really, I think it's the source of, of nearly every problem in our country, our broken education system. Name one issue. doesn't matter. Name an issue. Broken families, drug use, a stagnant economy, uh, bad politicians who enact bad policies. I mean, it's all from a broken education system. The other day on my local show, we talked about how I think obesity is even caused by our broken education system that doesn't teach nutrition. And our government has determined that a cafeteria pizza is a vegetable. So obesity can be traced back to education. Our failure in our education system. Everything. Name an issue in our country. There's a direct connection to the failure of our school system. And of course there are victories, but those are in spite of the system. I want a government who sees their job as empowering citizens again. Now, I want to give an extreme example of of the government not empowering citizens. I guess earlier when we we talked about what happened on 9-11 with the uh, Coast Guard saying, listen, if there's any boats nearby and can evacuate people from lower Manhattan, that would be great. Hundreds of boats swarm into Manhattan and embark on the largest water evacuation in human history. 500,000 people in less than nine hours. That was the government empowering the Navy saying, or Coast Guard, I think, saying, listen, we can't, we need people to help here. And look, look what people did. We shared that story earlier. Here's an extreme example of government taking away power from people. This is a Google executive. Uh, this speech is from two years ago. They're talking about the Arab Spring. And one of the things we had written about in the book is governments in the midst of conflict will become so concerned about empowered citizens that they'll literally set up checkpoints to confiscate phones or see what's on them. So what did I hear from my friends in Syria? The government has set up checkpoints in Damascus, in Aleppo, in homes, and they ask you for your phone. If you won't willingly give them your password, they hold a gun to your head and ask for it. My friend told me about her brother being found in this situation. Uh, the guards at the, at the checkpoint saw a post on his wall Uh, that was somewhat sympathetic to the revolution. A signal came from the uh, checkpoint up to the rooftop of a nearby building, which then resulted in him getting shot in the head. So this is very real, right? It's not just that there's cybersecurity issues and physical security issues. Let me stop there, I think. The, the, The government in Syria, so scared of people having information, so scared of people feeling empowered, and independent and sovereign, that they will shoot you in your head if you don't give them your password to your Facebook account. That's real. So now again, that's an extreme. I mean, wrong. Of course, we're not near that, but that's an extreme. But can't we have the opposite of that? And I really think that the exact opposite of that is, hey, listen, law-abiding American citizens, take this gun safety class if you want to carry a gun because this will deter crime And, you know, you can help save lives if something does happen. So I'm the local police chief. I'm the sheriff. Come on by. We'll do gun safety classes for for anyone who wants to do it. 
That to me is empowering. That's the government empowering. But instead we have a government that says, you can't have gun. <laughs> what is that? Or an education. Hey, listen, passionate, caring citizens and businesses, please start your own schools. Start your own classes where kids can learn in new and exciting ways. And we can discover the best ways of educating kids and, and open up opportunities for people that, have, that, that, that we've never thought was possible. Empower people. Governments by their nature don't like to empower people, even in a free country, free country like America. The government always has to do more, which by definition means you do less. And I reject that premise. I got 60 seconds. Let me share one last thing. You decide if there's room for the government to retreat. Right? What I want, I want a candidate to step up and talk about how they can empower people because we're ready and capable and the government has plenty of ways, plenty of room to retreat. The Federal Register Index says there are 257 federal agencies. The U.S. Government Manual says there are 216 federal agencies. The Senate Judiciary Committee says there are 430 government agencies. The Administrative Conference of the United States Sourcebook says there are 115 agencies, but says there are no, there is no authoritative list of government agencies. Literally, no one even knows how many government agencies there are. <laughs> no one knows how big the government even is. So I argue by that fact alone that it can be made much smaller. And we the people will be more empowered because of it. 1-888-900-3393. Slater Radio on the Tweet Machine. I want to come back. My one final thought on Donald Trump and how he uses Art of the Deal in his campaign. This is Mike Slater. Part of the next generation of talk radio. On the Blaze Radio Network. generation of talk radio this is mike slater just sent over a clip to our illustrious producer of uh, of the donald all right i want to do one last little thing here about donald um you may, you may be sick of hearing about uh trump but i'm sick of wondering why why uh, i'm sick of people wondering why trump is doing so well you know, we don't need to talk about Jorge Ramos right? and the optics of that. Trump literally deporting a Mexican out of the room. Right. So while other candidates are talking about immigration, Trump is already deporting people. The, the visual of, of Jorge Ramos being ushered out of a Trump event is so incredibly powerful. And most people didn't recognize how powerful that was or, or, or what they were watching. Um. You know, we've talked a lot on the show about how Trump is a master negotiator, but Trump is also a master of the visual. And that's what that was. So let me just say, I always have to do this disclaimer. This is what I'm saying here is neither for or against Trump. It's just an analysis of, of what's happening and, and how this is, how his campaign has been so successful and will continue to be successful. And he's only gaining steam. And the other day he said that uh, in September, his daughter, 
and wife are going to be a part of the campaign. Once Ivanka Trump is in front of video ca- uh, cam- uh, TV cameras all over the country, good night. That will be a... <laughs> he will launch into the stratosphere when Ivanka Trump, his daughter, who is incredibly um, talented, it, it, it's just going to... It's going to change everything <laughs> so that that's coming they're getting the master of the visuals but he's also uh, a master negotiator so i want to talk about something he's, he's been doing in his campaign um it's called the it's called loss aversion we hate losing much more than we like to win let me say it again because that's weird. We as Americans, and I don't know if this is a human thing or an American thing, but I know it's an American thing. We hate losing more than we like to win. Now, you may disagree, so let, let's, uh, let me give you an example. So uh, let's say on Monday you go to work and your boss calls you into his office and says, great news, we're going to give you a $1,000 raise. Pretty good, right? That's great. I think I'd be fantastic. And you think of all the things you can do with a thousand bucks. All right, cool. Yeah, everyone would be pretty happy with that. That's great. Now imagine your boss calls you in on Monday morning and says, sorry to tell you this. We're going to cut your salary by a thousand dollars. Now, how do you feel? Most people will be way more upset at losing money, at getting a pay cut, then they would be happy at getting a pay raise. It's just how we're wired. Now, you'll see this in advertising campaigns, uh, although not everyone's good at this technique, but it, it looks something like, uh, stop losing $100 a month on your car insurance. Call Mike's car insurance. That is way more um, persuasive than... Call Mike's car insurance to save $100 on your car insurance. And you're like, oh, saving money, okay. But, oh, I don't want to lose money. People, we hate losing. We hate losing. It's called loss aversion. So what does this have to do with Trump? This is an interview that Trump did with O'Reilly the other day. This is just, this is another master's class on persuasion and negotiating. Here it is. We have to bring our country back, Bill. We're in big trouble. We're losing so much. We're losing so much to so many. And we have to bring our country back. We have at least 11 million illegals in the country. Not only the jobs they're taking, but everything else. And you know about the crime wave, because I think probably nobody has covered the crime wave better than you. There is a literal crime wave going on. You know, and if you look, we've spent last year $113 billion on illegal immigrants. We have to do something about it. And we have to start by building a wall, a big, beautiful, powerful wall. It can have a gate. It can have a door. We'll let people in legally, but we have to stop okay. what's happening to our country. Right. Because Let's stop there. So <clears throat> actually, I'm sorry. There was one more sentence there. I'm sorry. Now, I want to advance. Yeah, the he, said, he, he said, this sorry, I didn't mean to cut that off. He said, because we're losing our country. So in the first seven seconds of that clip, He said we need to bring our country back twice. Now, I won't play the rest of the interview, but in the next three minutes, he says bring our country back four times. 
So four times in three minutes, he says, we need to bring our country back or we need to take our country back. And then you heard in the beginning, he said, we got to bring it back, Bill. We're losing it. We're losing our country. We're losing jobs. We're losing prestige. We're losing all these things, Bill. We gotta, we're losing it. We got to take our country back because we're losing all these things. Why does he say that? Because he's a, he, listen, again, nothing he does is by accident. He's the genius. He wrote the book on negotiating. He is appealing to a more powerful emotion in people than wanting something. He's appealing to emotions that say, well, I don't want to lose something. Because we hate losing more than we like winning. Now, of course, at the end, you got to say something positive, right? But that's after you, you get people fired up. You get people afraid of losing things, which is why he ends with not just we're going to build a fence. Notice he, he never says fence. He's, he doesn't say we're going to build a fence. He says we're going to build a wall. And not only are we going to build a wall, we're going to build a big, beautiful, powerful wall. So whatever you fear is going to be lost. We are going to protect it with something that is big, beautiful, and powerful. That is masterfully constructed. Think about that. Why would he say the wall is going to be beautiful? (laughs) That makes no sense. A beautiful wall? What are you talking about? What is a beautiful wall? Why does anyone care that it's a beautiful wall? No one has ever talked about the aesthetics of a border fence or a border wall ever one time. And here we have Donald Trump saying it's going to be big. It's going to be beautiful. Who cares? It's because he's not talking about the wall. He's talking about protecting whatever it is you think you're going to lose. Notice he never says what we're losing. He never says, he says we need to take America back, but he never exactly says what he's talking about. And that's the key. Because each person who listens to it finishes that thought on their own. That's, it's, it's huge. When he says we need to take our country back, he never says from whom. Now, you can say, well, immigrants. Cider. Obviously, he's talking about immigrants. Sure, sure he is. But he doesn't say, and notice this, he'll never say we need to take our country back from Mexicans. He'll never say we need to take our country back from immigrants. He just says we need to take our country back, period. He alludes to immigrants, but he never says it in that sentence. He leaves it open for you to determine what he's talking about. So when someone says, uh, or when he says we're going to bring our country back, we're going to take our country back, some people listening to that hear from illegal immigrants some people listening to that say oh good we need someone to take our country back from liberals some people hearing that say good we need someone to take our country back from political correctness some people hearing that say good we need to take our country back from russia good we need to take our country back from iran right he leaves it open-ended so that each person can fill in the blank of what it is they think they're losing And who we have to take it back from. So we feel like we're losing something. And, but that's okay. Because if we vote for Trump, he's going to build something that's big and beautiful and powerful. And it's going to stop us from losing that thing. Barack Obama did the exact same thing with hope and change. Hope and change. He said, that was his campaign slogan, right? Hope and change. Hope for what? (laughs) And change to what? He never said. You fill in the blank. That's why it was so perfect.
And that's what Trump is. Trump's doing the exact same sales technique. Again, not good or bad. I'm just saying what it is. It's brilliant from his perspective. And then to say that he's going he's gonna to save that loss. So he's appealing to loss aversion. And then to say he's going to stop that loss from something that is by building something that is big, beautiful, and powerful. That is so genius. That is just classic marketing and negotiating of persuasion. And he's doing it on everyone. And no one has a clue. Big thing. I mean, does this make sense? Because I had someone call. I told this on my local show. And someone called in and said, Slater, you are so wrong. You are so far off. When he says we need to bring our country back, he's talking about bringing our country back. Or, or he's talking about taking our country back from 20 years of progressivism. And I said, Charlie, did he say that? No, but that's what he's talking about. That's what you heard. And here's the genius. The person who's sitting next to you who heard the exact same speech is thinking, it's about time Donald Trump takes our country back from illegal immigrants or whatever. You fill in the blank. It is brilliant. A big, beautiful, powerful wall. Oh, that's so smart, too. 1-888-933-93. Again, he wrote the book on negotiating. And he's using it as campaign, and the candidates and the media have no idea what to do with it. one 888 Mike Slater Show, The Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. You're listening to Mike Slater on The Blaze Radio Network. Mike Slater on the Blaze Radio Network. Slater Crusaders. It's fun to watch Trump's campaign. Um, again, when you realize he's not running a political campaign, he's running a business negotiation. So everything's totally different. All bets are off. And he's doing a absolutely brilliant job. Uh, every day it looks more and more likely that he's not only going to be the nominee, but he's going to win the whole darn thing. It's really stunning to watch. Um, so we'll talk more about it as the weeks go on. Uh, I want to uh, read something here. You, I'm going to read a quote. Tell me, guess who said this? Who said this? We must remain a nation of laws. We cannot tolerate illegal immigration. and We must stop it. For years, Washington talked tough, but failed to act. Our borders might as well not have existed. The border was under-patrolled, and what patrols there were were under-equipped. Drugs flowed freely. Illegal immigrant was, immigration was rampant. Criminal immigrants deported after committing crimes in America returned the very next day to commit crimes again. I continue to firmly oppose welfare benefits for illegal immigrants. We believe family members who sponsor immigrants into this country should take financial responsibility for them and be held legally responsible for supporting them. Who said that? Take a guess here. Who said that quote? It's actually a trick question. That is, uh, it's not a who, that's a what. That's from the Democratic Party platform in 1996. Bill Clinton. 
who, by the way, won. But how about this, right? I I continue to fir- it was we uh, we continue to firmly oppose welfare benefits for illegal immigrants. Uh, we believe family members who sponsor immigrants into the country should take financial responsibility for them. Wow, that's interesting. Um, it's actually pretty funny if you get a second to read the Democratic Party platform in 1996. Just how far, how much things have changed. Uh, how about this? Today's Democratic Party believes that working people should not be taxed into poverty. <laughs> Are you kidding me? I'm taking, you know what? I'm stealing that. I'm taking, I'm making that my own. I believe people should not be taxed into poverty. That's awesome. That's exactly what's going on here in California and across the country too, but in California, they want to raise the gas tax again. We have the highest gas prices in the country by far. It's about four bucks. I think the average probably a little under four bucks, but I filled up the other day for four, four bucks a gallon. And they want to raise the gas tax again. I don't believe people should be taxed into poverty. Hey, listen, when you think poverty, what state do you think of? When you think poverty, what state do you think of? Well, you better start thinking California. The poverty rate in Mississippi, 15%. California, 23%. People are taxed into poverty. If you make more than $40,000 a year, the income tax is 8%. So if you make 40 grand, California takes 3%, 3 grand right off the top. Getting a little closer to poverty. 45% of the cost of all housing in, in California, 45% of the cost of all new housing is regulation. And, and all our capital can do is, is restrict the number of houses that are allowed to be built and change zoning policies, which make the price of housing go even higher. We are being taxed into poverty. Take that over. Remember the couple, last couple of weeks we've been talking about taking over social justice, making that our own? Because really it applies to conservatism more than it does whatever the people who have it now is. right? Because social justice, we believe in fairness and opportunity. That's social justice. That's the true definition of social justice. Take it over. I'm also taking this over. I am against taxing people into poverty. That's why I'm against taxes. Forget about cutting taxes for the rich. It's not about that. It's about cut, and not even for the, the business owners. It's about ta- cut, cutting taxes so that we're no longer taxing people into poverty. Good stuff. Slater Radio on Twitter. Mike Slater Show on Facebook. We can stay in touch for the entire week. Have a wonderful rest of your weekend, and we'll be back uh, next Sunday, Labor Day weekend. Spread the word. You're listening to Mike Slater. Part of the next generation of talk radio. On the Blaze Radio Network.